Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Yudtet, page 19. And with page 19, we actually begin Perak Zion, the seventh Perak. Um, this chapter, for the most part anyway, and it's actually a pretty short chapter, I guess they all are in this Masachet, which is so short with so many prakim, um, it really discusses things that are found where the precise halachic status is not known. Now, it's not thorough, meaning it's not, it does not address all of the things that could be found where you don't know the halachic status. But what is discussed is exactly this kind of thing. So I'm going to open with the Mishnah, the halacha aleph, which is actually at the very top of the daf. Ma'ot and there you have it, right? Meaning money, coins, money that was found. Ben hashkalim karov lishkalim. Now, we have, let's think back to what's going on in this Lishka in the temple, right? So there's different, um, I don't want to say collections, different sections of the place that you know, are designated um, for the different things, right? So that some of the Shkalim have been marked to be what's called a Nedava, right? Something that's a free will offering, right? And those can be used in certain, just for certain kinds of offerings, right? And then there's also the Shkalim, the Shkalim meaning, I believe this is the Machatzita Shekel, right? And they're all divided um, up amongst, let's say, the different um, collection baskets, right, which have them, right, which have each of these different kinds of things. But what happens when the money is found, you know, on the ground, let's say, different things, you don't know exactly where it's supposed to, where it was designated to be, right? So now you have money, in this case, money. The identity of it is not known. And what you can do with it or what you're not allowed to do with it is really you know, now a puzzle because because it would really depend on which basket, or, again, which collection it was supposed to be in. So, again, this is a case of ben l'shkalim l'nadava, karov l'shkalim. Yiplu l'shkalim l'nadava, yiplu l'nadava. So if it's closer to the shkalim, to this collection, then you put it with the shkalim. If it's closer to the nadava money, put it with the nadava money. Nadava, again, is a free will offering. Mechza l'mechza, and that's the best you know, that's the trickiest case. You've got something that is equidistant to these two things. So in this case, we've got an answer. What's supposed to happen? It goes to the free will offering. Now, we've got a new case. What happens if you have money that was found between, again, through the, I'm calling them collection baskets. Earlier, we've seen them called shofarot. I mean, I believe that's the case. Anyway, we've got different, the different collections of the, what this money is designated for. Is it for the wood or is it for the livona? The livona is part of the ketoret, the incense, right? So if that money is closer to the wood collection, then you give it to the wood. If it's closer to the incense collection, give it to the, into the incense. Mechza lemechza yiplu livona. And here we're told if it's equidistant, it goes to the incense. We're not given any explanation at this point. The Mishnah, for all of these Mishnahit are long and perhaps more involved than other Mishnahit that we've seen in other Masechtot, it, it, that doesn't mean it necessarily provides explanations as to why. It just gives more details of the case. Okay, now another case of money that's found between that which is marked to be for the bird offerings and that which is marked to be for, I'm sorry, there's pairs of bird offerings, and then there's also the doves for burnt offerings. Now, amongst all of these, um, you know, collections that are all around the area, 
again, this is going to be the question. Where is it going to be? What's it going to be closest to? Ben kinin le ola. So those are two cases. Kinin is the pairs of birds. Gozle ola are the burnt offerings of the birds. I mean, to be burnt. Karov le kinin yiplu le kinin. Karov le gozle ola yiplu le gozle ola. This is, of course, that makes sense, right? If it's closer to that, you assume that that's where we're supposed to go. It's logical enough. It's possible that it's wrong, but it's logical enough. Mechza, what happens if it's exactly equidistant? Yiplu le ola is allocated to go to those birds which were going to become olot, burnt offerings. And then lastly, ben chulin sheni. What happens if you have money that is found, you know, somewhere between the container for chulin? Chulin just means money, right? I mean, it's, it's not consecrated in any way. It's not designated for anything as yet. Or the Master Shani collection, which is the Master Shani is that which is given to the Leviim um, for their use, right? So then, again, this makes perfect sense. Wherever it's closer to, it's going to go to that. What happens when it's equidistant? It should go to the Maser Shani, which in this case, I think we can safely provide um, an explanation, which is that, you know, this is erring on the side of caution. If something has the potential to be not consecrated for anything and you could use it for anything, or consecrated for something in particular, designated for Maser Shani, you know, and now you're not sure if it's the free-for-all or the specially designated, you know, so give it to Maser Shani anyway, just as a precaution, if nothing else. And now we finally get an explanation or at least a general overriding principle, zeha overarching principle. Sorry, zeha klal holchin achar hakarov lahakel mechsel mechsa lemachmir lahachmir. So, meaning as once you know that something is close, when you know that it's close to the other, to whichever collection, so then even if it's going to be the more makel position, the more lenient position, you put it to that basket because it's closer, and so there's a certain amount of logic that will allow. To say that should go to that case, it will be lenient rather than just always being stringent. But if you've got it equidistant and you can't ha- you you can't rely on the proximity to allow you to get to that more lenient position that says just put it to whatever it's closest to. Instead, we say, okay, you know what? In each case, you have you want to go for the more machmir case. So in each of these cases, each each one where it says you know it should go to, for example, in this most recent case, it should go to Master Shani. It, it becomes clear that those are the more stringent positions. Those are the more stringent cases where there are more restrictions on the funds. The consecration is of a higher level, etc. Well, it's certainly that this is the type of Mishnah, and it's this is why it's so long. It just sort of works out every single possible scenario. Um, and I think it's really a pretty clear-cut um, Mishnah. But I think it, again, reflects a theme that we've seen all throughout Shkalim, Every single thing that is donated to the temple has to be accounted for appropriately. There's no saying like, oh, you know, the coin is there. I'll just pick it up off the floor and just stick it back into like, you know, one of these shofar road. You have to really think about how close it was. What was it closest to? What was it farther from? Was it directly in between? And all of these, you know, uh, I guess different circumstances have different answers as to what do you do. Nothing is left just for chance. I just want to add one thing, which is in the Gemara. It's not in the Mishnah here, which is that the shofarot were not arranged like um, in the corners of the room, let's say. They were arranged in some kind of circle or semicircle, right? So that then when you're talking about what's equidistant and what's closer to which, and, and you've got all these different 
you know, pockets, all of these different shofarot with different designated funds. I, I imagine that it could take some real careful accounting to make sure that everything goes where it's supposed to go. The fact that money might be found, you know, like in no man's land and you're not sure what to do with it. It sounds like, what do you mean? How could that even happen? They should not, they should be keeping track of their money. And yet it seems a little, perhaps a little bit more realistic given the way, you know, the way it's set up. Yeah, I know. It's not an online account. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, you know, there is something I like the word that you use, like, you can totally see all of these scenarios happening. Like there is something super realistic. And especially when the currency is coins, right? You can imagine if something falls, something drops, you know, it's it's not bills. And I'm assuming they didn't have wallets the way that we do. We're certainly not credit cards. So they really had to sort of take care to make sure they accounted for everything. Um, I'll move on now to the next Mishnah, which, you know, if the parak is talking about sort of uh, the topic of found objects is what I would say, found items. And what do you do in terms of trying to make some type of inference of their real actual origin? And how does that impact halacha? And so the mission reads as follows. So coins that are found in front of animal dealers in Yerushalayim, it's talking about even though Yerushalayim does not appear here, they're always considered to be Maser Shani. So remember, Maser Shani is the, you know, when you have to take your tights, right? You do truma, that goes to the coin, master, which goes to levium, and then you have to do a master shani, which is always done on the first, second, fourth, and third year of the uh, Shemitah cycle. The third and sixth year is master ani, you donate it to poor people. And the idea is that you take that money and you, um, well, you, you take the master, you take those crops, you sell it, and the money you get from that, those crops, you then have to take up to your shalayim, and you have to spend it on food. So again, this was like an economic thing, right? That in other words, this sort of gave a particular influx of cash that always had to be used in Yerushalayim itself. And um, the idea here is that if you, you know, found money outside of an animal dealer in Yerushalayim during the year, so we sort of assumed that people were kind of tra- maybe trying to come to buy a shlamim that they would give as a korban and then eat that as their master shani. Um, money. And that's why we have to assume that it was for Master Shani. So you can't just assume it's Chulam. But if you find it somewhere on the Temple Mount itself, right? We're not talking about just regular Yerushalayim, but the Temple Mount itself, um, uh, we assume that it's actually Chulam. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, because even though we're talking about, you know, that during, uh, you know, there were specific times of the year that everybody would sort of have to bring you know, would probably do their Master Shani, which would probably be during Sukkot, Pesach, um, and Shavuot, right? But we also assume that people are more careful with their money um, during the time period of the Regalim. And therefore, if you found the money on the actual Temple Mount itself, that's why we assume that it is actually Hulan, which is kind of an interesting way. It would be Yerushalayim, but if they find it elsewhere in Yerushalayim, right? Bishar kol Hulan, in all other times of the year. So now we're not talking about finding in front of an animal dealer. We're just talking about you're in Yerushalayim and you find money. And the regular times of the year, we assume that it's Hulan. But during the times of the Regal, we assume that if you find any money just in regular Yerushalayim, not in the Temple Mount itself, we assume that it is actually Maser because that's where people were going around and they were buying things. But if you were on the Temple Mount itself, it, the assumption is you either bought stuff with your money, you were careful with that money. So we can't believe that that would sort of just be 
Master Shaney money that would be lying around there. Um, so it's a little bit not intuitive there. Buster Shanin Saba Azara. Let's say you find meat in the temple courtyard. Evarim Olot. So if it's limbs, then we assume them to be um, from a korban ola, right? Because those that type of korban, the meat was cut into large cuts um, after, and then it was divided, and then it would be put on uh, the mizbeach. So in other words, the cut, the type of meat they found, looked like ola meat. That the the evarim. Um, and then it goes on to say, but if you find slices, okay, that can't be an Ola because that's not what an Ola looked like. Um, and they wouldn't be put into smaller cuts. And therefore, we have to assume that it would be a Chatas. And remember, a Chatas is something that's actually edible. Um, so that's why it's interesting to see. So based on the size, that sort of determines what type of, uh, what type of Corbin we assume it to mean. Um Let's say you just found meat somewhere in Yerushalayim, not in the courtyard, right? Not in the Azara. We assume it to be shlamim. Um, Whether, and there it's not the size that's important. So this could be large sizes or smaller sizes. It's not the, the size that's important. But in any case, no matter where you find these pieces of meat, you, you're not allowed to eat it, right? Because you don't know when the meat, when it was given or anything like that. Um, and you basically, it doesn't mean that you actually get to eat the meat, right? Even though we said the chatas is edible meat, but you have to sort of leave it till it appear on sort of changes. In other words, you sort of leave it over, you know, and then what do you do? And then you have to take it to the Beit Hasrefa, uh, and then you have to take it to the place of, um, burning. You know, there was that particular place where we talked about it, where, you would burn all of this, you know, stuff that you could not eat. And when we talk about the appearance changing, it just basically meant usually means they would just leave the meat overnight. So then it became what we call, you know, no tar becomes leftover and you're not allowed to eat it. So it's making sure that even the meat that you could eat, right? If it was hot test meat or shlemmin meat, you weren't allowed to eat it all. And then you can go ahead and, and burn it. Let's say you find meat outside of your shalim and somewhere else, right? Limbs are assumed to be nevelot right, are assumed to be non-kosher um, animals. But if it's in slices, um, uh, that you can um, that you can assume was meant to be eaten, right? So in other words, we're going to assume most people were eating kosher meat. But if it was, if let's say an animal didn't get shafted correctly or something happened and it was something that it was in a veil. In other words, we're talking about a kosher animal that you find, right? If it's in these large pieces, so we assume there was something that was wrong and it was just sort of like thrown into the street for an animal to eat or something like that. But if it looks like it was cut up, like it was prepared, then you're allowed to eat it. And what follows from there, based, oh, sorry, and let me just finish this one last part. But at the time of the regal, right, when there's tons of meat around, in other words, everybody's cooking meat and people would cook large pieces of meat. Even Evarim. And we're not talking about in Yerushalayim. We're talking outside of Yerushalayim. In other words, people are celebrating all over. There's a lot of cooking, right? Which this makes a lot of sense. If you find Evarim, right, then it's okay. Because the assumption is, of course, most of the meat that around has to be kosher. And, and that's sort of the idea. And that's the theme that sort of is going to continue afterwards. The Gemara here says, right, talking about just going back to the issue of the coins, the Mishnah didn't have to talk about anything, really only about the coins that were found, uh, you know, on the, uh, that were found at Harabayit, that they're considered to be holy. So in other words, the question is, 
Why does the mission assume that those coins, the ones that are found in Harbite, have to be Hulin, right? It doesn't really make sense. We would assume that most of them would be holy. Most of them should be Maser Shani. So what's the answer? Rabbi Ba, uh, so Rabbi Ba says, Rabbi Chia B'Shem Rabbi Yochanan, in the name of Rabbi Chia, this is the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Chazaka She'ena Kohen Mutsim Min Halishka Ma'od. Because we assume that a Kohen, right, who brings, you know, who would basically take these consecrated coins um, and, you know, would buy an animal, he wouldn't take them out of the Lishka. Until he first deconsecrates the coin. In other words, there really weren't consecrated coins, holy coins on Har Habayit itself, right? Because Maser Chini coins shouldn't have been there because you were using them to buy food on, you know, in Yerushalayim itself. And if you think it's the coins, like it's Shkalim or, you know, whatever it was that was donated and a coin was using it, and let's say on his way to purchasing the animal, somehow it fell out, you know, and you found it. What they're trying to make the point is saying the Kohanim were really careful. They had a whole system set up that like literally the second they took it out to buy something, it automatically became deconsecrated. And therefore, that's why it's considered to be Hulin. Um, What follows here, which I found interesting, and this even goes to the next step, is they now get into like a whole series of stories of different scenarios of like an animal that's, you know, parts of an animal that's found, meat that's found, wine that's found, cheese that's found. And based on a number of circumstances, basically determining was it kosher or was it not kosher? Was it something that could be used or not to be used? Or was there a specific way to try to determine whether or not it was kosher? And the idea basically is if there's a set of circumstances or you sort of know the set of circumstances that you know the majority of people are Jewish, right, then we're going to allow you to use that wine or we're going to allow you to use that meat or we're going to allow you to use that cheese, But if that's not the case, you know, we can't do that. That's sort of one set of circumstances. So it's interesting to see, you know, that really all of this is sort of by a power of deduction. And, you know, I also sort of like I'm someone who lives in America, you know, this idea that like a lot of this is determined by the fact that the majority of people there were actually Jewish. Um, And, you know, yes, there are some scenarios where they talk about like you really can't, you know, it could have been that it got mixed up with non-kosher meat where somebody was specifically serving something that was not kosher, um, you know, but but that's really what they do. But there's one interesting story here that's right at the end of this Amud, and then I think we'll wrap up after this, which is described as fine. Wait, Yanana, before you get to the story, I just want to say one thing, just a comment, because the other day you mentioned Breira, right? This idea that we very often, and we've seen it in all of these different Masechot in different contexts, where you're where there's a a question about identifying what you have before you. Can you can you determine what it is? Can you determine its status? And I feel like, you know, that's all over this parak, first of all. So that's one thing. And I think that, you know, we were talking in preparation. I think that this is, you know, there's something um, very, actually, I think we were talking about a different context, Jordana, but that, um, that there's something very specific, uh, you, I don't want to say unique, but like particular to the Beit HaMikdash and to, to all of these, the offerings and everything like that, where, where status and identifying what something is and being able to define it as this is sanctified, this is consecrated, this is not, this is for the Kohen, this is for whomever, right? Meaning there's so many um, details, but it's not, it's it's like identity politics, love deal, right? Meaning I don't really mean that. It's really about the, determining the identity of each and every thing which seems to be, you know, very prominent in this chapter because it's all about things that we don't know what it is. Um, but I think that it seems to be something I would say that's throughout halacha in a way that I don't know that if we 
we would call it that, let's say, until we come yeah, I, I would agree with that. And that's why this story is sort of interesting. Chadbar Nashbitsiporan Azil Bai Mizubin Kufad Mitabcha. So there was a person from Sipori, right, in Sipori, who went and wanted to buy meat from the butcher. Below Yahavli, and the butcher wouldn't give it to him. So most of them, first explained, they were like enemies. The butcher didn't like him. So what did he do? Amar Lechad Romi, the Atele. So he got a certain Roman. It's interesting to see that he specifically picked a non-Jew. And the non-Jew brought him back the meat. In other words, he told this Roman, go ahead, buy meat, and bring it back to him. So what did he do? Amar lo nasbit al-karche. So he, you know, basically goes back to the butcher, this guy, and he says, look, I actually got meat from you against your will. And then he answers, So the butcher says to him, wait, but you know, I actually gave the non-Jew non-kosher meat. So in other words, you know, that's what I thought he wanted. I thought, you know, so you can't even eat that meat. You're not even going to get to enjoy it. So Rabbi Yirmiya, b'shem Rabbi Hanina, right? So Rabbi Yirmiya said in the name of Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi. So this incident came, um, in front of uh, front of Rabbi, and this actually the story also appears in Masechet Chulin, which we are not going to get to for many years. Um, and he said it's not in his power, right? It's not in Rabbi's power um, to prohibit uh, the meat of the market of Tzipori in that day. In other words, what the question really was is, even though we know that this butcher did something a little deceitful and he sold non-kosher meat to a non-Jew without telling people that he occasionally sold non-kosher meat, right? He, Rebbe can't say that you can't, like, can't say to Jews, you can't buy kosher meat because it really wasn't a precedent that he wasn't selling non-kosher meat to Jews. Um, so it's sort of like an interesting, uh, a little interesting twist uh, to this particular um, type of story. And that in the end, we still follow the majority, even though we had proof that somebody did sell non-kosher meat um, but because of the particular set of circumstances of Rabbi felt, you know, I don't think he was happy about it. We, you know, if you look at the language of the ruling itself, but Rabbi felt we still could say that mo- the meat that was sold to Jews, we know was going to be kosher. Um, I think that this idea that, you know, we and this it's funny to me because it brings us back to other topics that we've raised in Erevin. You know, again, you said a while ago that the topics now are going to we're going to see the connections in more different ways. And I think we do this idea that there is the interplay between Jews and non-Jews in this way that it could actually cast aspersions on his, you know, selling to Jews, but no, no, now it's going to be okay. Right. Like, I feel like there's much more to delve into. I think you're in the, in exactly that question. What was the degree of interaction between them in terms of butchers? Right. Um, and again, in terms of reliability, is always an interesting question when it comes to Jew, non-Jew relationships, dynamics, what people think of somebody who does business in both camps, right? Um, and we're not going to delve into it today, but it's just, it's there for the for right fruit for the picking, I think. Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I just feel like part of what I'm enjoying about this Masachat is just seeing like, you know, this these types of stories and then the stories that follow on the next stop, they just give you a lot of insight into like what day-to-day life was. And again, negotiating some of those things of like living amongst you know, non-Jews, what those relationships were like, what can you assume is Jewish, what can you assume is not Jewish, and I, I personally find this stuff to be interesting. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Don't forget to sign up for our CM on April 11th, God willing. 
the registration is, uh, the sign up is on our Facebook page um, and also in our WhatsApp group. And until tomorrow, go and learn.